Okay, so tonight we're going to be in Isaiah 26. You know, a lot of the chapters we've been in lately have talked about burdens against this nation and this people and that and whatever, and and they always end with God, you know, with God in charge. Isaiah 26 is just one of those hopeful, very, very inspiring and uplifting chapters. So it's going to be a good Bible study tonight because it's going to put us in the time of of the millennium and the time leading up to it when God has all all the prophecies of of of, of doom and destruction for the world have come about. Jesus Christ is returned to earth. The people that have been led captive are now returning back to the land that he has had, and God's way is beginning to permeate the earth. So I want to draw our attention back to Isaiah 25, verse 9, because this is this is the chapter 25, of course, leads into chapter 26. And you can see that chapter 26 begins in those three words, in that day. So we know that in that day is talking about a time ahead of us, the time of Jesus Christ's return, but it's talking about the people of God who have been brought back or who are being brought back from captivity and put into the land that God promised Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob long ago. So in verse 9 of Isaiah 25, it says, it will be said in that day, behold, this is our God. We have waited for him and he will save us. This is the eternal. We've waited for him. We will be glad and rejoice in his salvation. And last time, you'll remember, we talked about waiting for God, one of those attributes we have to have. We know that God is true to his word. We can trust him. We can rely on him. In his time, he will save us. We have to wait and be patient for him and show that trust by the waiting we do. So if we come down to 26, we see in that day. And as we come through here, we'll talk about people, but it's talking about that same day, you know, that is there in, in, in verse nine. And we see this song of, of the song of joy, really, that is being sung in that day. It says in chapter 26, verse 1, in that day, this song will be sung in the land of Judah. Well, Judah, you know that area, that's where, where that's part of the promised land. That's where God will bring his people back to. We have a strong city. God will appoint salvation for walls and bulwarks. I mean, they're they now have they have a, a strong city. They have they they no longer are trusting in machines and weapons and fortifications and armies and all this stuff. We have a strong city. A strong city is when you rely on God and he is the one who you look to for salvation. And it says we have a strong city. God will appoint salvation for walls and bulwarks. And that's talking about God. God, instead of walls and bulwarks and these things of men that provide or that we think provides us protection and fortification from, from the world, it'll be God, God who is, is trusted in. Let's turn forward to um, Isaiah 60, near the end, and God talks about those walls again near the end of, of Isaiah. We'll see these recurring themes throughout Isaiah of, of the future and how things will be. You know, in, in this chapter in all of Isaiah too, we learn several several things about us, what we need to be developing in our lives um, as we we live and live the way that God wants us to live. In 60, chapter 60 and verse 18 of Isaiah says, violence will no longer be heard in your land, neither wasting nor destruction within your borders, but you shall call your walls salvation and your gates praise. You know, it won't be bricks, bricks upon brick upon brick upon brick. It'll be God is our protection. God is our fortress. God is our, God is our refuge. 
and your gates praise. People will praise God. They will realize who he is, trust him, and, and, and give honor and glory to him. If we go forward, even a few more books into another major prophet, Ezekiel, we read something about those walls. And when we have a picture of the millennium after Christ returns and the people are coming back to the promised land, and, and what, what happens? It's an interesting thing that God puts us here and tells us something about the way Satan works with man and, and how even in the millennium, when Christ returns and mankind sees, you know, sees the glory of God, sees that Jesus Christ has come on the earth, he establishes people, and there still will be people who have thoughts in their heads, just like after we're baptized and hands are laid on us and we have the Holy Spirit, there's still thoughts that come into our minds. We all have experienced that, right? And we have to reject those thoughts, reject that temptation, and not to let them, not to let those thoughts and that influence of Satan dominate us. But but here in, in chapter 38 of Ezekiel, Ezekiel 38, you know, we come down here, and if you read through it, you, you know, 37 is the, the famous chapter about the dry bones, the resurrection, and then you have chapter 38, and you have this time after the resurrection, and you have these, the people of, you know, says in verse 2, Gog and Magog, Rosh, Meshach, Tubal, and everything. But if we come down to verse 10, we see this, this land without walls. It's clearly not a clearly not a, a city in the world that we have today. In verse 10, it says, Thus says the Lord God, on that day it shall come to pass that thoughts will arise in your mind, and you will make an evil plan. Well, at least, you know, Gog and Magog is who this is talking about. But there's those thoughts. You know, Satan will be abound away at this time as we as we picture by the day of atonement. But there's still those thoughts that linger in our minds. It's the purification process that we go through in our lives. That, you know, we ask God to cleanse our minds, get these evil thoughts and desires out of our heart and replace it with the, the pure and, and perfect thoughts that, that he has. So on that day, it'll come to pass that thoughts will arise in your mind and you will make an evil plan. You will say, I will go up against a land of unwalled villages. I will go to a peaceful people who dwell safely all of them dwelling without walls and having neither bars nor gates. Here's the land in the future. They don't have walls. This is that strong city that's relying on God that doesn't need walls. It doesn't need bulwarks. It doesn't need weapons. And here's this other people is like, wow, they're completely unwalled. I'll go down in verse 12. I'll take plunder and take booty to stretch out your hand against the waste places that are again inhabited, against the people gathered from the nations. That's who God's talking about, the, the people of Israel who he brings back, who have acquired livestock and goods, who dwell in the midst of the land. And so they make this plan, and they go forth, and they go out to do that, but it doesn't succeed. I think you probably know the rest of the story as you read chapter 38 and chapter 39. God intercepts those people. They don't come into Judah. They aren't going to lay lay hold or plunder a people that is relying on God in those unwalled villages. And when we come to chapter 39, we see um, in chapter 39, verse 8, we see the end of this group of people that thinks they're going to come down and, and attack, attack these people whose salvation is God. Chapter 39, verse 8 says, Surely it's coming, it'll be done, says the Lord God. This is the day of which I have spoken. Those who dwell in the city of Israel will go out and set on fire and burn the weapons, both the shields and bucklers, the bows and arrows, the javelins and spears, and they will make fires with them for seven years. 
They won't take wood from the field nor cut down any from the, for from the forest because they will make fires with the weapons and they will plunder those who plundered them and pillage those who pillage them, says the Lord God. So you have you have this people that in, in these unwalled villages, you know, that well, they want to come across those unwalled villages and God shows, I'm salvation, I'm refuge, I'm your peace, I'm the one to look to and trust, I will protect you. And, and in the next few verses, we see that very thing in Isaiah 26. We go back there, again, we read verse one, we have a strong city. We have a strong city, not because it's nuclear armed, not because it's got the highest walls of any city on earth. We have a strong city. God will appoint salvation for walls and bulwarks. Open the gates, he says in verse two, that the righteous nation which keeps the truth may enter in. The righteous nation that keeps the truth. There's God's people, a definition of them then, a definition of God's people today, the people who keep the truth. You know, we talk about that over and over again. God, Jesus Christ says, he's the way, he's the truth, he's the life. We have to, we have to live the way. We have to become the truth. It has to become part of what we are, knowing and living by every word of God. And in that time when Christ returns, so what he's talking about, you know, the people that will come back to Judah, they will be a nation of truth. His truth will, will be extant on the earth. That righteous nation, which opened the gates, so that righteous nation, which keeps the truth, may enter in. That, of course, refers back to Isaiah 25, verse 9, that we read at the beginning of this Bible study. And then I think one of the most, I don't know, one of the most calming, you know, there's, all of us have these scriptures that, that you know, we, we, we cling to and remember, and they have a meaning and they inspire us, right? Isaiah 26, 3 is one of those among many for me when he says, you will keep him in perfect peace whose mind is stayed on you because he trusts in you. And, you know, that is so, that is so true. I think, um, you know, in times when we are in trials, we might be sick and facing a, a you know, a dire health crisis. We might be facing some kind of, um, uh, tribulation from people in the future. We may have people lined up against us for some reason. We find ourselves in, in certain traits um, or certain uh, straits, I should say. But if we keep our mind on God, if every time we feel that fear, if every time we feel something, we keep our mind stayed on God, it brings us that perfect peace. You know, I think about Jesus Christ and 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 in the last in that Passover day when what he knew when he entered into that day, what was going to happen. And when he was out in the garden and when the, you know, the Romans came and he was arrested, you know, he, he was scared as any human being would, would be. I mean, scared, dreaded what was going to happen to him. But, you know, through it all, what he did was keep his mind on God. He didn't let fear captivate him. He kept his mind on God and that's what his focus was. And that kept him in perfect peace. It can do the same thing for us if we would just learn, keep our eyes on Christ, keep our mind stayed on him, whatever the trial, whatever the whatever confronts us. God knows. God says, I'm 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 here, I'm your refuge, I'm your strength, I'm your rock, as we'll read here in a little bit too. Trust in me, trust in me and put your faith in me. And if we will do that, we would be kept in in perfect peace. 
you know, the, at the, as it says in Philippians 4, verses 6 and 7, we don't have to turn there. The peace that surpasses all understanding. It's the peace that when people see us go through some of the rigors of life and more so as we, you know, head closer and closer to the return of Jesus Christ, we'll say, how can, how can they be so calm in this crisis? How can they just not cave when people are angry with them for what they believe or whatever, whatever it might be? How come when they have this serious situation facing them, they're not upset, they're not scared, they're not rushing to every ally to find out what they can do because their mind is stayed on God. Just keep that verse in your mind as you go through trials, whatever they may be. Keep if You'll keep him in perfect peace, God tells us. If our mind is stayed on him, trust in him. Verse 4 repeats that. Trust in the Lord forever. Trust in him forever. I mean, it, he, he's it, it, forever is 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 him, right? It, it, our forever is in Christ, not in our strength or our intelligence or anything, right? It's all about it's all about him and what he does and our trust and how we yield to him. Trust in the Lord forever. For in Yah, and I'll come back to that Yah. That's the Y H W H. For in Yah, the Lord is everlasting strength. And in the old King James, I think uh, it's actually translated. For in Yah, the Lord is the rock, is the rock of ages. We'll come back to that in, in a minute um, as well. But, but let's look at that word Yah there for a moment. You know, most, most of the time when we see the tetragam, tetra, whatever it is, tetragammon, I don't know why, why am I coming that, that Y-H-W-H, it's, it's translated, you know, capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D. But in this case, and in Isaiah 12, verse 2, we saw it, you know, a few chapters as well. The translators there actually used Yah. They did not, they did not defer to the capital L-O-R-D. And the commentators say, and I, I'm not, of course, a, a Hebrew scholar or anything, but the, the text in those cases where Yah is put there instead of L-O-R-D, there was such a significance placed on the trust that that they wanted they that indicated that we should have in God, that that's why they felt they had to use Yah. It was even greater than capital L-O-R-D. One of the same, but whatever, however the, the Hebrew is phrased and the sentences or words around it, it was like, this was even of more strength, more trust, more, more, you know, glory given to God, more reverence of his name than the typical Y-H-W-H in the way the words were formed. So when you see that, like here in Isaiah 26, verse 4, in Isaiah 12, verse 2, that we read 13, I guess, 14 chapters ago, it's even more, it's even more emphasizing the greatness of God and the reverence and the fear that we should have of him and how great, how great he is. And of course, there in verse four, it, it talks about him being the rock of the rock of ages, everlasting strength, you know, ever, everlasting strength, eternal strength. And of course, you know, I know that we know many places where God is referred to, you know, as a rock. I mean, we can go to the New Testament and there Jesus Christ says, upon this rock, referring to himself, upon this rock, I will build my church. And then he talks about Peter being a smaller rock, right? But Jesus Christ is the foundation. He's the cornerstone. He's the rock. Now we can go back to, to Israel coming out of Egypt and wandering in the wilderness and where when they were thirsty and, and crying for water and thought, you know, God just brought us out here so we would thirst to death. Where did the water, where did the salvation came from? Moses went and God brought water forth from the rock. It's God who gives us salvation. It's God's, it's through his Holy Spirit that we have 
life and sustenance and all those things. So we we have these pictures of a rock and in the Bible, throughout the Bible, from Old Testament to New Testament. But let's do take just a little bit of time because this is such an important concept when we talk about rock and the stability of rock and how how the analogy of the Bible is God is our rock. Rocks are immovable. They are stationary. They last for thousands of years. I'm sure there's rocks on the earth that were there at the beginning of creation. They are a, a symbol of stability and trust, fortress and strength. So let's go back and just look at a few verses to see how prevalent that analogy is in the Bible. If we go back to Deuteronomy 32, Some of you, some of you will remember from Florida when we were doing a Bible study through Deuteronomy a few years back, and we got into the latter chapters of Deuteronomy. We see they're all very much future focused. They're talking about the time yet ahead of us when it talks about Israel's future, when God, you know, when God is inspiring Moses before he dies to tell what's going to happen to them in the latter days. And here in, in chapter 32, we have this song that will be sung. And in, and in verse four, um, in verse four of Deuteronomy 32, the song that that um, you know, the song that Israel will sing, he is the rock. He is the rock. His work, his work is perfect. We drop down, of course, you know, you might take some time to just read through that and look at that in the context that God gave it. We drop down to verse 15, 15 through 18. He talks about, you know, verse 15, Jeshurun is another word for Israel or another name for Israel, right? Talks about the, um, the malady of Israel. They grew fat and kicked. You know, God gives us plenty. And so we, you know, we enjoy the good times. They grew fat. They were, they were robust. They were energetic. They grew fat and kicked. But then it went beyond that. They grew thick. You're obese. And their energy and their zeal for God waxed. It just, it just waned. As, as those progressions, as they got so enamored with the wealth that they have and the things that they have, exactly what God, you know, it said back in Deuteronomy 8. You know, when you have a time of plenty, when your bellies are full, don't forget me. Don't forget me. And Israel did this. The more they had, the further away they grew from God. And then he, Israel, verse 15, he forsook, good, forsook God who made him. It's never God who leaves us. We leave God by our actions and by our, you know, pushing him aside or for forgetting him. Then he for then he forsook God who made him, and he scornfully esteemed the rock of his salvation. They provoked him to jealousy with foreign gods. They started trusting in other things more than God. With abominations, they provoked him to anger. They sacrificed to demons, not to God, gods they did not know, to new gods new arrivals that your fathers did not fear. We see that happening again, you know, new things. You know, lately there's been this sensation for some reason with, with Satan. I didn't watch the Grammys, but like all of you, you've probably seen some of the scenes played back from one of the acts, the singing acts on that, where it was literally a depiction of Satan with the demons around him and the fire raging and whatever. And, 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 uh, and in one sense, the in one sense, the adulation of Satan that came about, and another one, the outcry about what what is this being done on our TV, where Satan is actually being, you know, lauded and and almost worshipped, and some of the comments that came out of some of the producers. Yeah, Sherry. The did you hear about the the abortion clinic they're setting up in New Mexico, and it's being set up by the Satanic Temple? 
that no. comes out of that comes out of Salem, Massachusetts. Hmm. But they're actually putting they're supposed to be doing it this month, starting to put in the abortion clinic wow. where they can do all this. And they've got the statue of the horned goat with the with the Satan emblem on the forehead and all kinds of vulgar things around it, plus two little children at his feet. Wow. I, it's yeah. kind of like unreal when you see these things, right? And and that and that's where society's going. That's where the the that's where it is. You know, I I mean, you've probably seen the pins that they were wearing. It's something I don't know where that was. Something going on with abortion, a pin with a heart in abortion. Like we love abortion. It's like who loves abortion, right? So um, it's just society moving further and further away from God into areas that just kind of defy the imagination that people could do that. So. So anyway, going on in verse 18, then of the rock who begot you, you're unmindful. You've forgotten the God who fathered you. And so, you know, as we look at society around us, we, we I mean, you and I know it's God who's blessed this nation. But more and more, we forget God. We move further and further away, you know, from him. If we go to um, Psalm 18, you know, David, yeah, throughout the Psalms, he often refers to God as 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 his rock in Psalm 18 and uh, verse 31. It says, who, Psalm 18, 31, who is God except the eternal? And who is a rock except our God? It's God who arms me with strength and makes my way perfect. So, you know, David recognized that, recognizes that as he, as he knew God, a man after his own heart. We go down to verse uh, 46. You know, the same psalm, he says, the Lord lives. Blessed be my rock. Let the God of my salvation be exalted. We go over to Psalm 62. Psalm 62 and verse 1. And we have this concept of waiting for God. Truly my soul silently waits for God. From him comes my salvation. He only is my rock and my salvation. He is my defense. I shall not be greatly moved. Those are all things that you know we can we can we can think of when we're troubled. Verse five, same chapter, Psalm 62. My soul waits silently for God alone. My expectation is from him. He only is my rock and my salvation. He is my defense. I shall not be moved. In God is my salvation and my glory, the rock of my strength and my refuge is in God. So I could go, you know, on and on, and you can too. There's a lot of verses that I'm sure you thought of where God is referred to as a rock. There are some of the hymns that we sing in our hymnal talk about God is my God, the rock of our salvation, I guess it's called God is my rock, my refuge and, and, and strength. So, you know, again, a lot of the themes as we go through these chapters in Isaiah, they teach us the things that we need to know. And it's in the it's in the, you know, in the format of, of what it will be like in the millennium and, and how people are be there. So if we go back to Isaiah 26, you know, we've, we, we see this concept, trust in God. He is our rock. And we come, when we go on to verses, um, you know, five and six, again, we have God talking about the pride of uh, the pride that could be in all of us and what happens to the proud. In verse five, he says, he brings down those who dwell on high, the lofty city. He lays it low. He lays it low to the ground. He brings it down to the dust. The foot shall tread it down, the feet of the poor and the steps of the needy. 
So again, we have, okay, we have the proud of the earth. You and I can be, you and I can be prone to pride. We have to always check that and ask God to make us mindful when pride is getting the better of us. And always remember, it's not us who does things. It's, it's got to be God's way or it's a useless, futile time and thing that we're doing. But God will always bring the pride, proud low. You know, we should remember forever brought low or, or humbled in some way. Be thankful to God that he's still working with us, right? He's showing us they need to, they kind of need to be, you kind of need to be humble because it'll only be the humble. You know, that's who he looks to and that's who he he works with. In verse six, you know, verse six is really a reference back to chapter 25 again, where it says the foot shall tread it down, the feet of the poor, the steps of the meaty. If we just go the chapter back, you know, or I guess it wasn't last week, two weeks ago, in chapter 25 in verse four, Remember, we talked about the strong cities. He made the strong cities um, a ruin. But in verse four of chapter 25, it says, you've been a strength to the poor, a strength to the needy in his distress, a refuge from the store or shade from the heat. Well, God God looks to the humble, right? When we're humbled, he He, he delivers them. And, and that chapter four or verse four there is talking about the humble, the people of Israel who have been humbled, who will come back. And he's talking about these this, these proud nations, these proud peoples, and what will bring it down? The foot shall tread it down, the feet of the poor and the steps of the needy, the humble. You know, it's God always who gives the victory, not us, not our smarts, not our weapons, not our schemes, not our strategies. You know, God, God will do that. And, you know, the humble, the humble, uh, God will give the victory, the victory to. Going on in verse um, seven, then. You know, we, we see the way, you know, I, I, lately, every time I see the two words together, the way I think of Jesus Christ saying, I am the way, the truth and the life. So, you know, when we see the way God shows us the way we're supposed to be living the way, teaching the way, demonstrating the way, being, being an example to our families, friends, neighbors, co-workers of the way, just as Jesus Christ was. But in verse seven, it says the way of the just is uprightness. Oh, that's true, right? Christ was upright. Next, very verse, next line. Almost upright. You weigh the path of the just. So the way of the just, the ones who are living by God's way, is uprightness. Almost upright is what Isaiah or God inspired Isaiah to write here, calling God almost upright. And so upright, you know, uprightness is is if you look in, in the concordance and strongs, it says it can mean the straightness, the the evenness of God. You know, in, in Matthew, I guess it's Matthew 7, it says, straight and narrow is the path, right? Straight and narrow is the path. Keep your eyes on God. March straight ahead to him. So it could have been, you know, um, straightness or evenness. Now, the, I, the, those words will, will go pretty well because it, the next phrase there in verse 7 is you weigh. And when we think of an even scale, how many times in Proverbs do we, we, are we reminded of when God talks about, you know, honest scales, Make sure that make sure that those scales aren't even and you're not trying to put yourself in more favor and giving more than what the other person has. God is in the even scales, right? You you what you sell, you sell the right amount and everything. And so we have this concept of uprightness here in, in verse seven. The way of the just is uprightness, straight and narrow path. You weigh the path of the just. They're even, they're steady, they're walking in the way of God. Verse eight, yes, in the way of your judgments, O Lord, we have waited for you. You see how that keeps coming back? We've waited for you. We had the patience. We had the faith in you. Even when things looked dire, when it looked like it was hopeless, 
Our faith remained in you. We didn't take matters into our own hands. We trusted in you and you came, you know, you came through and in whatever way God does. So Lord, we have waited for you. The desire of our soul is for your name and for the remembrance of you. You know, that was, that's what God wants us to, you know, to have developed in us, that what our true desire in life is to bring glory to God's name, to do the things that God wants us to do, to be like him. The only way that happens is through his Holy Spirit as we yield to it. I mean, no, uh, no other way, right? It, it has to be the only way we know and can live God's way is with his Holy Spirit leading and guiding us. Without his strength, we, we fail. We fail. Without his Holy Spirit, we fail. The desire of our soul is for your name. That's what we want is what you want. Just like when Jesus Christ, you know, said on that last night or that night of uh, that Passover night, you know, nevertheless, your will be done. You know, if, the, if it's if it's your will, let this cup pass through me, but your will be done. My desire is to do the things that you want. And when we pray, thy will be done, you know, it has to that has to become part of us. And that's truly, truly what we want is for God's will to be done with my soul. You should have took that thermometer from up there. Yeah. Okay. Um, okay. With my soul, verse nine, I've desired you in the night. Did I reread that? Yeah. With my soul, I have desired you in the night. Oh, no, no, I didn't. Okay. Desire of our soul is for your name and for the remembrance of you. Finishing verse eight. And then with my soul, I have desired you in the night. Now that probably, you know, may make you think of David, right? How many times did David, when he would talk about meditating, he would be talking about meditating in the night as he would wake up, God's thoughts were on his mind. We'll read a few of those verses here in a minute. Because again, we're seeing, you know, how God works with us. What, you know, what we do when we, when we wake up, what's on our mind? Who, where is our desire and everything? Yes, with my soul, I have desired you in the night. Yes, by my spirit within me, I will seek you early. And so, um, you know, let's let's look at a, a couple of things there, because David, a man after God's own heart, talks about those very things as he wrote those Psalms and as God inspired him. So there's a few there's a few verses here. I'm gonna, just going to go through a few Psalms. So let's start in Psalm 42. Psalm 42. And verse eight. Psalm 42, verse 8, the Lord, the eternal, will command his loving kindness in the daytime. Okay, command his loving kindness in the daytime. And in the night, his song shall be with me, a prayer to the God of my life. And there, verse 9, you see him referring to God as his rock there. In the night, his song will be with me. We go forward to Psalm 63. Psalm 63 and verse one, verse one. Oh God, you are my God. Early, early I will seek you, right? That's, that's, that's verse nine of Isaiah 26. By God's spirit within me, I will seek you early. Oh God, you are my God. Early I will seek you. My soul thirsts for you. My flesh longs for you in a dry and thirsty land where there is no water. You can feel David saying, you know, with my soul, I desire to be with God. I, I want his will to be done. If we go down to verse six, you know, he's talked about early. I will seek you in verse six. When I remember you on my bed, 
I meditate on you in the night watches because you have been my help. Therefore, in the shadow of your wings, I will rejoice. I meditate on you in the night watches, in the middle of the night. Forward to Psalm 119. Talks about the night watches there in chapter 63. Talks about them again in Psalm 119. Of course, we know Psalm 119 is one of those Psalms where God is, or David is just praising God and meditating on his word. How great is your word? How wonderful is your word? I contemplate your word. You know, how energized he becomes, how zealous he becomes, how, how much he desires it. In Psalm 119 and verse 148, 119, 148, he says, my eyes, my eyes are awake through the night watches that I may meditate on your word. You know, in, in the sense, when you, when you look up other translations and what those words translated are there, it shows this anticipation. It says that this, this verse shows David was anticipating the night where he could just lay and meditate. He could just lay and meditate on God's word. You know, I just I'm eager for the night to come when all the all the day's work is done and I can just lay there and think about you and I can think about your word. You know, that that's what was in his heart. My eyes are awake through the night watches that I may meditate on your word. I don't want to sleep. Yeah, Dave. Uh, yes, um, I think this is also a great, uh, sorry, my, the light in here is not too good, but I think it's a great prescription as well for just, you know, when it's a lot of times in the middle of the night when you're laying there, it's all silent, and that's when your mind can play tricks on you. That's when these invasive thoughts from Satan or fears uh, can really come at you. I know it happens for me at times, and and I think meditating you know while, while you're laying in bed or like the one verse about singing songs you know going over hymns and things in in our minds can really help be a prescription to that because it can really help us to continue to focus on god and in his way and and strengthen our faith as opposed to just sitting there in the you know the still of the night and letting fear or or negative thoughts enter our minds. I think it's a great prescription uh, to go against those those negative things. Yeah, you're exactly right. You're exactly right. The next time you wake up and you're, you know, even sometimes we can devise these plans, right? Someone did me wrong and boom, boom, boom. We can go on and on and on. Think about that. Make yourself stop and start thinking, thinking about God and meditating on his word. And you'll see those, those feelings, that anxiety, that fear, you know, uh, dissipate. Yeah, Xavier? Uh, just across the page, um, sorry, just across the page in uh, verse 165, it complements what is already said in, in Isaiah verse um, verse 3, as well as what Dave and you are saying from the scriptures. It says, um, great peace of those who love your word, and there is no cause for stumbling. And it starts in verse 62, where it says, um, I rejoice in your word. Are you in one? Are you in one nineteen? Yep. Okay. One sixty-five. Once on oh, one sixty-five. Okay. Okay. I see. Okay. Yeah. One sixty-five. Okay. Yeah. See. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, Psalm one nineteen. Sometimes we, you know, we rewrite. We 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 read through that because we just think, wow, we got one hundred seventy-six verses to get through. But boy, there is a lot of meaning in Psalm one nineteen. If you just take it, you know, stanza by stanza, it's 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 or, ordered here by eight verses at a time. But there's a different thought in each one of those eight eight verses that are there. You know, sometimes when you want to do a Bible study, that would be a good one. What what is what is God recording in each of those? Uh, what is it? Twenty two times eight, uh, one hundred seventy six verses. So, yeah, good, very good point. So, 
So I, anyway, you can mark down Psalm 143, 8, 2. It talks about seeking God in the morning. I won't turn there. Um, you know, he just, he talks about, the, you know, looking for God in the, in the morning as well. So anyway, you know, when here in Isaiah 26, when it talks about seeking God early, seeking him in the night and doing those things, those are all things, you know, that, that we can do. God is showing us we got to make ourselves do it, right? We got to choose God's way. It doesn't come automatically. We have to train ourselves. I'm not going to do it that way. I'm going to do it this way. And then it becomes, it becomes you, you know, when, when these, these, these things come up in our lives. So, okay. We go back to Isaiah 26. We're in the middle of verse, verse nine, you know, in the middle of verse nine, then it says, for when your judgments are in the earth, well, when will that be? That will be the millennium after Christ returns, right? When your judgments are in the earth, the inhabitants of the world will learn righteousness. You know, you know, Habakkuk 2.14, uh, the word of God will cover the earth as the waters cover the sea. In that day, in that day, everyone will know the word of God and, and the peace, the peace will be on the earth. Even though those thoughts that we read about in Ezekiel 38 may, may come among some, you know, peace will be because, because of God's spirit and the knowledge of God that is being practiced in the earth at that time. In verse, in verse 10 and 11, then, you know, it's talking about those, you know, before the return of, of Jesus Christ. We have, you know, we've talked about all these peoples, the peoples of um, Egypt and Syria, of, um, you know, Assyria, all those nations around there, Ammon, Edom, Moab, Arabia. It says, you know, and God destroys them, right? We read all those in those 11 and 12 chapters back in Isaiah 13 to um, 13 to 24. And here in verse 10, it says, let grace be shown to the wicked. You know, God, God does show grace. We have to remember God loves all mankind. It is it, God's will is that none would perish, that everyone would choose him. And his plan of salvation includes every man, woman and child who has ever lived. They will all have a chance to choose God or reject him. Now, when Jesus Christ said in John 5, 28, 29, all men will rise, all will rise, some to eternal life and some to condemnation. It will either be life, eternal life or eternal death, right? But God's will is that none, none would have to die. But we know, sadly, that some will not choose God. They will not, they will not over, or let God help them overcome, you know, their desires. And so, but God does show grace, let gross, grace be shown to the wicked, yet he will not learn righteousness. There will be the second resurrection. We've talked about that. We read about that in Revelation 20, where all, you know, every man and woman who is not part of the first fruits, you know, as we follow God, as you and I do, and as we we allow him to purify and perfect us as we go through our lives, we would be there as part of the first resurrection. Everyone else who has ever lived would be in the first, second resurrection. And so God will, he will show grace to them. He grace to them. He will allow them to know who he is. He will open their minds to the truth. And yet some, yet some will not learn righteousness. Simply not going to do it, right? Sometimes today, you know, we know God has open minds. You know, they understand the truth. They understand Sabbath. They understand holy days. They understand God's way. They may understand, but it's like, I don't want to do that. I want to choose. I choose the earth. I'm simply not going to do it. Let grace be shown to the wicked. Yet he will not learn righteousness in the land of uprightness. Where's the land of uprightness? Who dwells in the land of the upright? It's the humble of the earth. It's, 
It's the people that the nation that keeps the truth that they may enter in, in the land of uprightness, he will deal unjustly. Just like those people in Ezekiel 38, who, you know, you know what, a thought comes into my mind, let's go down and attack that unwalled city. Let's plunder them. They're easy pickings, you know. In the land of uprightness, he will deal unjustly. You know, we read Ezekiel 38. That's at the millennium, the beginning of the millennium. Let's go back to Revelation 20, because we even see after a, a thousand years of Christ's reign on earth, what the world has experienced during that time is a time of peace, a time of abundance, a time of harmony, you know, no wars, or if there's been any kind of things going on, God stops it immediately. It has been a wonderful time to live. And so you have this kind of unbelievable situation at the end of all this, after those thousand years of Christ's reign on earth that we refer to as the millennium, we come to Revelation 20 and verse 7. And we read about the time after those thousand years have expired. You remember on the Day of Atonement, it pictures the time that, that Satan is bound. He's bound for a thousand years where he can no longer influence the earth. Doesn't mean that all the thoughts of man have been erased from them. They still have their thoughts. But it says here in verse 7, after the now when the thousand years have expired, Satan will be released from his prison. And he will go out to deceive the nations which are in the four corners of the earth, Gog and Magog, to gather them together to battle, whose number is as the sand of the sea. They went up on the breadth of the earth and surrounded the camp of the saints and the beloved city. And fire came down from God out of heaven and devoured them. So, I mean, here you have this after the thousand years are expired. You have, again, people when Satan is loose, because the people that are resurrected in the second resurrection have to make a choice just like you and me. We have a choice in this line. You know, Deuteronomy 30, 19, you know, the choice of a lifetime, God says, for those whose mind he has opened now, you know, I set before you this day life and death, blessing and cursing, therefore choose life. Well, choosing life isn't just saying I want life. Choosing life is living the way, the truth, and the life that God has called us to. And so they'll have to make the same choice. Do they choose to live by God's way, or are they going to choose their old way and, and follow and be influenced by Satan? Somewhere in our life, we simply have to say no to our own natural desire. Christ says, deny yourself. Deny yourself. Take up your cross and follow me. Those are our words when we think about them that have some, some tremendous meaning for us. We have to say no to self and choose God. So anyway, so we'll go back to Ezekiel 26. We're in verse, verse 10 here. In the land of uprightness, he will, deal, he, will, he will deal unjustly and will not behold the majesty of the eternal. Simply will not yield to God, right? Kind of hard to understand, but there will be some who do that, and not just a few. The Bible says many, which is, you know, which is a, an interesting word for God to, to use. Lord, verse 11, when your hand is lifted up, they won't see, but they will see and be ashamed for envy of people. Now, there's some tricky wording in there, too, and when you dissect all those words and look at what envy can be, I mean, there's a number of things when, you know, when your hand is lifted up, you know, when they see you conquering the nations and they realize, wow, it's God, God lifted his hand against us. We've been, we've been defeated, right? By the humble of the earth. They will, when they will see, they won't see them, but they will see and be ashamed for envy of people. And what it's talking about there is, you know, when they see the other people who have yielded to God and how he treats them and what goes on with them and the zeal that they have for God, that 
that they will that they will be ashamed like well why didn't we see this before why were we so blind that we rejected god i mean think about the people who will be you know who who have had the opportunity to know god in this lifetime and just thought eh uh, it's more it's easier to just be in the world and live in the world forget what i heard i've got time to do anything else you know what will what will that be what will that be like wow how embarrassed i am that i didn't choose god when i had the chance what was i thinking right but they will see and be ashamed that word ashamed is always there they will be ashamed for envy of people yes the fire of your enemies shall devour them they devour themselves by the choices they make and the zeal they have not for god but the zeal for their own their own ways and doing things apart from God. Okay, verse verse 12, Lord, or eternal, Y-H-W-H, you know, eternal, you will establish peace for us. You will establish peace for us. You know, 1 Peter 5.10, you know, Peter, as he's closing his first epistle there, he says, may the God of all peace settle you. May he establish you. May he you know, grant these things to you. It's God who establishes us. When we live in God, when we our eyes are stayed on him, when we have his Holy Spirit and he's leading and guiding us and we're letting him do that, Lord, you will establish peace for us. For you have also done all our works in us. You know, that's, that's a mouthful right there. You have done all our works in us or for us. You did it all. We don't have any credit. We can't pack our, pat ourselves on the back. It's not, not even for our salvation because it's only God's spirit that allows us to yield to him so that he can do his works in us and for us and through us, right? Even Jesus Christ, who lived his life perfectly, says in John 5, 19, the works that I do, they're the Father's, right? The words that I speak, they're not my words, they're the Father's words, he was completely yielded to God, and he was in perfect peace and joy when he was completely yielded to God. And the closer and closer we get to God, to God, where we yield to him and are willing to give up whatever, we feel joy that we can't understand until, until we've experienced it. And, and just like Christ, when you experience it, you desire it. And the more you yield to God, the greater that is. Lord, you will establish peace for us, for you have also done all our works in us. And then he muses on our lives past. O oh Lord, our God, masters besides you have had dominion over us, but by you only we make mention of your name. We've all had bosses. Some of them were very nice bosses. Others were good, were, were taskmasters and, and whatever. We've all had them. They had control over us. We're all men under authority, right? But only by you. Do we make mention of your name? Only because of you do we even know who you are, that we can bring glory to your name and that we, we, we can live your way. We literally owe it all to God. Not one of us found this way. God found us and, and, and opened our minds to this. They are dead, verse 14. They will not live. Well, not again in this lifetime, right? We all die and we're gone from the earth. They are deceased. They will not rise. But it doesn't mean never resurrected, right? Because we know there's a resurrection of all men. God talks about that. Jesus Christ himself said, all will rise. If you look at John 5, 28 and 29, I think we all know those verses very well. All men, the day is coming when all men will hear his voice and, and rise. Some to eternal life, some to condemnation. So it's talking about they won't rise now. They're dead. They're gone. They may have been stern taskmasters, but now they're gone. They're not part of our lives anymore. Our lot is to live for a while 
and then we're, and then we're gone. Therefore, you have punished and destroyed them and made all their memory to perish. You know, that's the way of life, right? To this, this little mortal life we live, if it's, you know, 70, 80, 90, 100, 110, 120 years, whatever it is, it's just a fleeting pass, a fleeting passage of time. When we're gone, you know, people may initially miss us, but after a while, it's like we were never even there. So futile. If that's all there is in life are these, these years that God gives us now. It's about what we do now for eternity. That's what God is preparing us for. That's what the meaning of this life is. Otherwise, we're forgotten. You know, my Bible references Ecclesiastes 9.5 there. So let's, let's go back to Ecclesiastes 9 and, you know, see again, the Bible, the same things we're learning in Isaiah. And I can spend time on every one of these verses and, and things like that to show that the Bible also supports, supports itself throughout it. You know, there's nothing, there's nothing here. It just, or I, there's, I shouldn't say nothing here. There's a ton here, um, but, but you can support it from other places in the Bible because the Bible all says the same thing. Verse nine or verse five of Ezekiel, uh, sorry, Ecclesiastes, Ecclesiastes 9, 5. The living know they will die. We all know that's our lot in life. Hebrews 9, 27. For the living know that they will die, but the dead know nothing. And they have no more reward for the memory of them is forgotten. The memory of them is forgotten. And that eventually happens. You know, even even with the great people of Earth, sometimes, you know, those things are they will they'll be remembered for a while. History books will do them, but they're just they're just names. You know, you don't you don't know them. The memory of us disappears. And that's what God is talking about. This physical life. So preparation time. It's a great time for us to get ready for the rest of time and yield ourselves to God. But it's all about eternity. It's just the first phase of our, our existence. Okay. Um, let's go back to Isaiah 26 then. Isaiah 26, we were just finished verse 14. They're dead, they're gone. You've made their memory to per perish. Verse 15, you've increased the nation, O eternal. You've increased the nation. You are glorified. You have expanded all the borders of the land. Do you see the praise and how many things that that Isaiah, that through Isaiah, God is, is, is making known to here. You know, he talks about increasing the nation, expanding the borders. You know, we read in the Old Testament about expanding the territory, right? I remember, I remember back, oh man, it's probably been 20, 25 years ago. There was a little book back long ago called The Prayer of Jabez. Maybe some of you remember that. And someone, someone wrote this little book on a, a prayer that was there in, in 1 Corinthians or let me look in let me look at my notes here and see see where that verse is um yeah first chronicles first chronicles 4 let's go back to first chronicles 4 because we see this expanding our bear, our borders enlarging our territory is something that god you know he keeps giving us more and more and more you know in first chronicles 4 this little prayer that Jabez, you know prayed in in verse 10 talks about enlarging our territories. It's how does God bless us? Today, he may not, you know, take our, our city-sized lot and give us another acre, but maybe he will, right? Maybe we move to a larger land, or maybe our borders, maybe our, our wealth increases as we live God's way of life, but he enlarges us as we live our life, as we do everything according to his will. In chapter 
First Chronicles 4, verse 10, Jabez called, called on the God of Israel saying, oh, that you would bless me indeed and enlarge my territory, that your hand would be with me and that you would keep me from evil and that I may not cause pain. Well, that's a little, uh, just a little prayer, but look how much Jabez said in that. You know, if you would, if you would bless me, if you would keep me from evil, that you would prevent me from causing pain for other people. And God answered the prayer. So God granted him what he requested. His heart was in it. It wasn't just looking to see how he could enrich himself. It was looking to live God's way of life. You know, if we go back to um, Exodus 34. I always remember Exodus 34, 24, because as people are leaving to go away from the feast sometimes they've got job worries and sometimes you know house worries and things like that in exodus 34 24 god knew that even when he was going to have ancient israel leave their homes three times in a year to go to jerusalem to keep the feast of uh days of unleavened bread the feast of weeks and the feast of tabernacles they would have these things well what about who's going to watch over my house and whatever verse 34 or chapter 34 of exodus and verse 24 i will cast out the nations before you and i will enlarge your borders you know, in those days, just like now, someone, you know, rushes over in Ukraine, what do they want to do? They want to enlarge their borders. They want to take over Ukraine and enlarge their borders. So we got this war going on. It's been the way of the world. I will cast out the nations before you and enlarge your borders. Neither will any man covet your land when you go up to appear before the Lord your God three times in the year. Do what God said. If you want him to bless you, it's got to be that you've got to do, got to do God's will. In um, Psalm 18, David, David talks about this concept as well. Psalm 18, verse 36. He says, Psalm 18, verse 36, you enlarged my path under me so my feet didn't slip. See the concept? Well, you did it, God. You enlarged it. I, you know, I was maybe danger of slipping, but you, you provided for me. I didn't have to worry about it. You did it. And God does. He'll, he'll enlarge us. And in verse, uh, in verse 15 of chapter 26 of Isaiah, that's what he's talking about. You've increased us, God, not by our might, not by our weapons, not by our military schemes, and our military commanders. It's you who did it, just like God does it in, in our lives, right? You've increased the nation. You've increased the nation. You've expanded all the borders of the land, verse 15. Verse 16, Lord, in trouble they have visited you. In trouble, they, now that's, refer, that's referring to God's people, right? When they were in distress, when they were in distress and they were, they, they recognized what they had done. And it's a marvelous thing when we recognize, you know, what we've, what we've done and we acknowledge our faults. Lord, in trouble, they visited you. They poured out a prayer when your chastening was upon them. There was difficult times. We've talked about those difficult times. Remember, even in the prophecies back there against Nations like Syria and Egypt and Ammon and Moab. And there was also the prophecy against Judah, the prophecy against Jerusalem. Israel fell. Tough times. Lord, in trouble they visited you. They poured out a prayer when your chastening was upon them. Well, we're in times of trial. You know, don't go, don't go running, you know, haphazardly toward finding anything in the world to cling to. Turn to God. Seek him. Pour out a prayer to him, just like Hezekiah did when we talked about him. When when um, Assyria was breathing down Judah's neck, 
He didn't run and say, I've got to make an alliance over here and get this done and use all my weapons, get everything aligned. No. What did he do? He took it to God, poured out a prayer to God, and God took care of it. In trouble, they visited you. They poured out a prayer when your chastening was upon them. As a woman with child, this shows how great the trouble was upon them, right? In Jeremiah 30, we've talked about the time of Jacob's trouble. Talked about that in sermons. We've talked about it here in the Bible studies as well. The times of Jacob's trouble when men are bent over in pain that they've never experienced before, just like a woman in, 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 in travail. As a woman with child in a, is in pain and cries out in her pains, when she draws near the time of her delivery, so have we been in your sight, O Lord. Tough, tough times that are prophesied. It really hurts. It's terrifying times, things that we have never experienced before. So when it talks about men having these things, men have never experienced the pains of birth. And so it's like, what is happening? How difficult is this? And God sees that time. When those times come, turn to God, he says. Turn to him in a time of chastening. Remember chastening, I've talked a few times in years past about piahidea, right? The Greek form of piahidea. And Hebrews 12, verses 5, and four or five times in Hebrews 12, the chastening when it's talking about there that God deals with us as, as sons when he chastens us is times of piahidea, the training that will, may be difficult, but we turn to God. It's a time, for, an opportunity for us to, to deepen our trust in God, to turn to him and keep our eyes fixed on him as we, as we read back in chapter or verse 3 of this chapter. So these times of intense trouble, in verse 18, we go on, we've been with child, we've been in pain, we have, as it were, brought forth wind, we've given birth, and then we realize we haven't accomplished any deliverance in the earth, nor have the inhabitants of the world fallen. We haven't done anything. What have we really accomplished? We put all our effort into doing things our way, and it has amounted to absolutely nothing. The only way things get accomplished and we ever have any kind of satisfaction in life when God opens our mind is to yield to him and let him do his work through us. Otherwise, life is futile. It can be frustrating. We can try. We can try and wonder why things don't work. Complete satisfaction comes only in yielding to God and allowing him to work through you. That's it. And, and Isaiah, as God inspired him, puts it beautifully. We haven't accomplished any deliverance in the earth. <laughs> we've done nothing. We've done nothing except fight against you, but at least now we've learned our lesson. Yield to you. It's the way to absolute, you know, gop gape. It's the way to true joy, true peace, all the those benefits of the Holy Spirit. We haven't accomplished any deliverance in the earth, nor have the inhabitants of the world fallen. We thought, you know, the Assyrians thought, ah, oh, we're high and mighty. We'll be the world rulers, right? Didn't happen. It ended in it ended in disaster, as it did for Babylon, as it did for the Medes and Persians, as it does for every every world ruling empire, as it will for America, as it will for the end time Babylon empire that will be extant on the earth before the return of Jesus Christ. And then for the next three verses, the last three verses of chapter 26, we have the hope of the resurrection. So, you know, as we have in this chapter, it is a beautiful chapter. It's a millennial chapter, and then the hope of the resurrection, that is the hope of all mankind. You know, Jesus Christ sacrificed his life that our sins could be forgiven. The hope of the resurrection is because he was resurrected after being three full days and three full nights in the grave. Not the Friday to Sunday thing that the world says, but three full days and three full nights as the only son that 
sign that he's the Messiah. So we have the hope of the resurrection. Verse 19, your dead will live. Simply put, we know that, right? First Corinthians 15, resurrection chapter says, you know, in a moment of the twinkling of an eye, the dead in Christ will rise. And this corrupt body will put on incorruption. You know, in Revelation 20, we read about the first resurrection. Even in the Old Testament, the resurrection is there. If we go back a few books here, right before book of Psalms, the book of Job, Job talks about the resurrection. So it's not just a New Testament concept. It's there. It's there in the Old Testament as well. Every time I've preached a funeral, not one of the pleasant things in life to do, but every time, every time, and probably every minister in the church turns to Job 14 and talks about, you know, uses Job 14 and verses 13 to 15. It's just the way God has made us. We have this temporary first part of our life that we live. We die. We're asleep. We wait for the return of Jesus Christ. If we've lived our life as he is our judge to be resurrected at the time of his return to eternal life, Job, in Job 14, verse 13, says, Oh, God, that you would hide me in the grave. You know, a few chapters back, we talked about a place of safety. Um, you know, we talked about the, the caves in Petra and the place for God's outcasts or whatever. Well, you know, as I've heard it said, sometimes in the year, the grave is a hiding place, right? It, you wait there and you wait there until Christ returns and then all of this is, is passed. Oh, that you would hide me in the grave, that you would conceal me until your wrath is passed. Well, we know what that wrath is. It's the, the time of the day of the Lord, um, that you would conceal me until your wrath is passed, that you would appoint me a set time and remember me. God never forgets us. If a man dies, will he live again? All the days of my hard service, I will wait till my change comes. The very same change that Paul talks about in 1 Corinthians 15. You shall wait. Um, yeah. Are, are, you, are, you, are you saying that the place of safety is Petra? I'm not. I said that we talked about Pet. I'm not saying that. No, I'm saying we talked about a little bit about that back in Isaiah 16. Where God's oh, okay. are. So, yeah. Only right. God knows where and if there's a place of safety. Uh, Mr. Shaby? Yes, sir. Yeah, Dale here. Hello. Uh, yeah, yeah um, some people think the grave is a, is a place of safety, I suppose, in a certain yeah. way it is. Eh? Yeah, it is, right? I mean, you're there and it's, it's all passes. <laughs> all passes and when you're raised or resting. Yeah, so, and verse 15 says, You will call and I will answer you. You will desire the work of your hands. So what, I mean, what is God doing with us now? He's working with us. He's working with us to perfect us so that when he resurrects us, we can serve him, you know, for the rest of time. So um, in verse 19, if we go back to Isaiah 26, that's what it says. Your dead shall live, right? Your, your dead shall live. That's 1 Corinthians 15, the first, the first resurrection. Together with my dead body, they shall arise. Awake and sing, you who dwell in dust, for your dew is like the dew of herbs, and the earth shall cast out the dead. It's Jesus Christ. They'll hear his voice, come forth, some to everlasting life. Um, you know, in the book of Daniel, he'll talk about he'll talk about the resurrection as well in Daniel, Daniel 12. I won't, I won't take the time to go there since I'm looking at the time here. But in verse 20, that it says, Come, my people, enter your chambers. 
here we have God saying these things again, right? Then this does harken back again to Isaiah 16, where he talks about his outcasts and, and these things. Come, my people, enter your chambers, shut your doors behind you, hide yourself, as it were, for a little moment until the indignation is past. And so we have again in the book of Isaiah something that we reference that God talks about here in Isaiah 16. If we go back there again, in chapter 16, verse 3, in this prophecy against Selah, which is the land of today's land of Jordan, and Selah, you know where it was, is in the area where Petra, this fascinating place is, you know, today with all these caves, you know, God talks about um, to Selah and whatever. In verse 3, he says, take counsel, execute judgment, make your shadow like the night in the middle of the day, hide the outcasts. Don't betray him who escapes. Let my outcasts dwell with you, O Moab. Be a shelter to them from the face of the spoiler, for the extortioner is at an end. Devastation ceases, and the oppressors is consumed out of the land. So we, we go back to that. God's talking about hide my outcasts, whoever his outcasts are. And I have in my Bible, Jeremiah 30, 17, you know, that also references outcasts. Um, let my outcast dwell with you. He comes back to this again. Come, my people, hide yourself as a word until the indignation is past. We know when the indignation is. We go back, you know, go forward to Zephaniah. We've been in Zephaniah before. It's the third book from the end of the Old Testament. Going backwards, you have Malachi, Zechariah. Um, I never do it going backwards. Haggai, and then Zephaniah. Well, I guess the fourth book from the end of the Old Testament. Zephaniah 2, verse 3, says, Seek the Lord. Seek the Lord, all you meek of the earth. Who are the meek of the earth? Should be you and me, right? That's a fruit of the Holy Spirit. Seek the Lord, all you meek of the earth, who have upheld his justice. Seek righteousness. Seek humility. It may be that you will be hidden in the day of the Lord's anger. So again, we have these verses that surround it as God indicates something. We don't know yet what it is, but when we pair that together with Revelation 12, 9, uh, 12, 9, uh, 12, 9 through 12 or 16, whatever the end of, of Revelation 12 is, you know, we, we still have this thing that, that God is talking about here that we don't know exactly what he's talking about. But if we go back to Isaiah 26 and finish the chapter here, for behold, the Lord comes, I'm in verse 21, for behold, the Lord comes out of his place to punish the inhabitants of the earth for their iniquity. Got the picture of Revelation 19, right? Jesus Christ coming from heaven with his saints behind him, armed with his armed with, with this his sword. And if you read Revelation, I'll be with you in just a minute, Becky. Um, he's armed, he comes down, and he makes a swift, swift destruction of the armies that are gathered together against him there. The eternal comes out of his place to punish the inhabitants of the earth for their iniquity. The earth will also disclose her blood and will no more cover her slain. So very kind of, you know, an inspiring and uplifting chapter of 26. And, um, you know, as we move into chapter 27 next week, we see it begins with in that day as well. So we'll be talking more about some of those prophecies of the future. I think inspiring. 
also ties a lot of the principles of the Bible together, also gives us some life lessons of what we need to be doing, how we need to be, if we want to be there at the time that Jesus Christ returns. Okay, Becky, you got a question or comment? I think I may have mentioned this before, uh, a different chapter in Isaiah, but in verse 20 of this chapter where he talks about shut the doors behind you, uh -huh. it reminds me of Genesis 7, 16, uh, about the ark, the animals going in were male and female of every living thing. And as God had commanded Noah, then the Lord shut him in. Yep, and I mentioned before, he shuts the door and they just have to trust him. Yep. And I, it always reminds me of, of what they went through. They just sort of wrote out the storm and they didn't, I don't think they questioned it. Um, so this verse here makes me think of that one. Yeah, yeah, you, you, you're exactly right. And that's a good analogy. And, and, and God, God saved them through that whole time, right? Yeah, he, that was their, that was their place that he kept them from the, the storms of life and the destruction. Yeah, very good analogy. Any yeah, Savior? Um, Brother Chibi, earlier we read in the verse where it said um, straight. What was that? Isaiah 26, verse, was that six or no? Are you talking um, oh, about lasting rock? Yeah, Isaiah 26, verse four, seven. we talked about oh, seven. Okay. Yeah, um, there's a verse in that we all quote a lot. It's um, 2 Timothy 2, verse 15 that says, um, rightly dividing the word of truth. Yeah. The word literally means to cut straight. Excellent. Yep. You see that concept? So, of, that's in that word upright, right? Yeah, the straightness, the evenness of the scales, and yeah, yeah. very good. So we shouldn't be crooked with God's word. We should be faithful should. and cut it straight. Right and down so practice exactly. and so teach. Yeah. Very yeah. good point. So, Mr. Shaby? Yes, ma'am. Can you just ask Xavier if he was in Ocala this last Sabbath? Because I think I saw him on the video. I just couldn't tell for sure if it was him. Hey, we uh, we were in Ocala this past Sabbath. Okay, yeah. I heard you give or, the is prayer. Is it Lou? <laughs> no, I met Lou, but I didn't meet Cheryl, no. No, I wasn't there. Oh, okay. But I thought it was you there when I saw you because you gave the opening prayer, I believe. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> See, Isaiah, we, we, uh, people can keep track of you. That's a good thing. So. <laughs> Sherry lives up in the Ocala area. So, Oh, I didn't know that. No, okay. Yeah, <laughs> Do you think the church is ready to be a spirit of comfort for this world? I think the church is. I think the church, I think God is getting us ready. I don't think we're there yet. I think we've got work to do in that area, so. And he will get us ready if, if we let him. So, with that yeah. question, yeah. Oh, sorry. Go ahead, Becky, oh, and then Jeff. Okay. Oh. Okay, Jeff. Hey, Jeff. Diaz. Yeah, I uh, I, I just understand that there's a lot of suffering out there, and uh, a lot of people looking for answers, and we've been through a lot. We're, we're able to answer so many questions for so many. If we're just a little bit more compassionate and not as confrontational with what we know. <laughs> yeah. Well, we are commanded to cry aloud, spare not, right? So we do have to do that. So sometimes that is confrontational, but we're just doing what God tells us to do. People have to be aware of how they're departing from God. So 
Um, where's Ocali? That place you were talking about? Ocala is in Florida. It's in Central Florida. Uh, okay. How do you spell it? O C A L A. <laughs> okay. Thanks. Very well. Maybe um, God permit, next time we're visiting there, you'll be there so we can meet and say hi. <laughs> let let her know. <laughs> next time you're going to let Sherry know. Hey Dale. Yeah. yeah. So sporadic. Oh, yeah. Thank yeah. Thanks. Uh, Xavier, you mentioned what was the word you mentioned again about the uh, covenant and dividing? Oh, it's um Artho Tomeo. It's in um second second Timothy two, verse fifteen, where we say yeah. rightly divide. The, the, yeah, yeah, the, rightly divide. And uh, yeah. I was it thinking of that. Cut, yeah. yeah, thanks. Uh, I was thinking uh, you know, uh, we, we use the term cut a deal. And you know, with uh, it relates to covenants. And uh, remember, Abraham did divided. Remember the uh, the animals in Genesis 15 as part of a covenant he was making with God, God was making with them. And mm -hmm. I just saw that what Xavier said reminded me, you know, the the idea of of cutting and rightly dividing. Yeah. Very good. You know what I mean? Uh, yeah. Yep. Yes. Yeah. It, the Genesis 15. Yes. Covenant. Yes. Uh -huh. Yeah. And God, God is kind of a. It, Sort of in a way, cutting a deal with us in a way we have to follow it as a covenant. Yeah. yeah. Hey, Donna, Donna, you got a comment? Donna Lombardi. Yeah, if you you would have your your you have your microphone muted muted if you're if you're trying to say something. Okay, how about DF Squib? Nope, okay. I was on a Zoom call and I couldn't figure out how to raise my hand, but you guys are figuring out how to raise your hands, but I, <laughs> I finally figured it out. So um, Donna or Mr. and Mrs. Squib, yeah, you got to un unmute your microphone if, if you wanted to say something. That's down in the lower left-hand corner. Okay, Xavier. One, one, Just one, one more. From your um, go ahead. Go ahead. Yes, okay. We enjoyed your Bible. Okay, thank you. Thank you. <laughs> thank you. Oh, Mr. Slavey, can you hear yes. me now? I can, yes, okay, yes. Uh -huh. Yeah, okay. This is Donna Lombardi. So when you were talking about shut the door, I thought of another verse. Um, it's from Matthew chapter 6, verse 6. And it's, um, but when... But thou, when thou prayest, enter into thy closet, and when thou hast shut thy door. Interesting. Pray yeah, very, yeah, very good. yeah, see, God uses those phrases, and they all have meaning for us when we put them all together, don't they? Yeah. Yeah. Now, Mr. Okay. Oh, okay. Raymond. Raymond's from Cincinnati. How you doing, Raymond? Okay. Can you hear me? I can hear you. Yes. Okay, good. Um, I was thinking about Isaiah, the 27th chapter, verse 20, okay. about the closing of the door. Like there's a time frame, like, okay, time's over. And I think about Jesus Christ, he says, and the door is shut in the New Testament. Like time is over. That's it. So anyway, but You're I right. love the Bible. I love That's... the Bible study. It's like the Bible is just so alive and vibrant and wonderful. The Bible, it's really good. When God opens our minds, it, 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 it yeah, it, it is amazing, and it produces a zeal. That's a good analogy too, right? The, the bridegroom and the and yeah goes in, and the door is shut. Yeah, very good. So, 
uh, Xavier. Uh, we read in, uh, what was it? Uh, Exodus, what was it, 34, Brother Shaby, or yeah, 24? Exodus 34, 24. Uh, okay, where, where, where our Lord talked about the people and them offering to demons. In Leviticus 17, verse 70, it talks about demons, but he, he specifically calls them goat demons. And we were talking earlier about what they're doing in, in uh, Massachusetts and as well as in um, our uh, Arizona. Was it Arizona? New Mexico. New Mexico. Thank New you. Mexico, yeah. Thank you, Cheryl. And it specifically calls them goat demons Interesting. in um, Leviticus 17, verse 7, yeah. that they will no longer oh, wow. worship goat demons. 17, verse 10. Um, Leviticus 17, verse 7. 7. Exactly. Yeah, wow. Okay. Yeah, we're living, yeah, we're living in a time that's kind of like unreal when you look at what's what's going on with all that, all that, what people are, what people are glorifying. So Hey, Alusiga, how are you doing? Yeah, I'm fine. Yeah, uh, Chevy, thank you very much. Thank you for the Bible study. Um, Isaiah chapter 26, verse 20. That verse 20. Uh, looking at verse, looking at that verse, I can see. I, I like the fact that we don't claim to know exactly how God is going to uh, protect His children during the time of the indignation. But looking at those verses, uh, God tells his people that they should come. God's people are to enter the chambers. They are to shut the doors. They are to hide themselves. So these verses, are, these, these words are active. It, it, it tells me that the, the church, God's people, has um, have a, a, an active role to play in the last days. But I feel, I feel, I'm just thinking, as long as we do our part in um, keeping to God's commandment, doing what God commands us to do, I think we can leave the rest to God to decide how he's going to protect us uh, during the time of indignation. You're exactly right. Our, our job now is just trust in God, follow him. He will reveal whatever it is he needs to reveal. I don't think he, he hasn't revealed everything yet, but he will reveal at the time it is. But we're going to have to have faith in him and trust him right to yeah. you know, jesus christ said follow me so wherever it is whatever it is we want to do we've got to have that faith in him that we'll we'll do that and it may not be probably won't be the easy choice so you're, you're right yeah. sure. thanks mm-hmm. okay anything else anyone hey very good comments very good comments yeah. thank you for your just a brief, uh, just a, yeah, just brief. Thanks. Yeah, I just hope I, I, I explained okay what I was trying to say. Uh, uh, I think First Timothy two and fifteen says, oh, you know, right, rightly dividing the word. Right. Of truth. right. Yeah, yeah, you know, God made a covenant with us at baptism. Mm-hmm. I mean, we need to continue to rightly divide the word of truth. So I hope I explained what I'm trying to say. You did, and you were comparing it to Genesis fifteen, the opening up of the covenant the, the animals cutting them straight down that's yeah yeah it kind of remind me of that as well yeah sure yeah yeah, yeah. and i could, could i just say uh mr. was on there and uh mr squib is from newfoundland yeah, so am i <laughs> so if he's still there i wanted to say hello to him he heard you <laughs> oh good <laughs> mr. mr shabby yes it's gloria <laughs> okay no no i'm looking i'm looking for a name that's what i'm looking for is okay that- gloria Gloria. Oh, hi. I'm over here. Yeah, I just wanted to tell you what a great
preparation, all this has been for the Passover. And yeah. we're supposed to be really getting ready. And if we use all these scriptures, it would just remind us how much God is helping us to get there. Yep. <laughs> thank you. Thank you. Yeah. You, you, you can look on the new refreshed website we put up, not we, Peter and, and the IT team put up a Passover Bible study there too. So we're going to have, we're going to have six of those leading up to Passover and some sermons that pertain to that as well. So yeah, you know, we're going to kind of lead everyone into Passover with, we'll try to anyway, through that website as well. So are they video or there is, yeah, the Passover ones are videos. They were done several oh. years ago, but yeah, they're video. They're okay. videos. Yeah. Good. The new website looks good. Yeah, I, I, yeah, they did a good job so putting it together. It was uh, done, done quickly, but um, yeah. <laughs> okay, everyone, I'm gonna. If everyone's done. It's been great, great spending this evening with you. Have a wonderful rest of the week and Sabbath, and we will look forward to seeing you all next Wednesday. Okay. Okay. Thank you. Good night, Good night everyone. Night, Thank Good you. Night. Good night. Bye. Good night, everyone. Thank Bye. you all.